Hello again, friends, and welcome to Madison Bookbeat, your listener-sponsored community radio home for Madison authors, topics, book events, and publishers. I'm your host, Stu Levitan. Our guest today is Madison author Christina Clancy for a conversation about her latest novel, Shoulder Season. Christy gave a very interesting and engaging talk at the Wisconsin Book Festival in October, and I am delighted to bring her to you today. As you may, or more likely may not know, from 1968 to 1981, there was, in southeast Wisconsin, the Lake Geneva Playboy Club Hotel, a full-service facility featuring big-name entertainment, championship golf course, a restaurant, cocktail lounge, and, yes, the requisite colony of bunnies, many of whom were from small towns around Wisconsin. Towns like East Troy, about 15 miles up Highway 120, where the Alpine Valley Music Center opened in 1977, the largest amphitheater in the country until 1993. The former Playboy Club, which had become the Americana Center in 1982, has been the Grand Geneva Resort since 1993. What life was like for the young women who became bunnies, and how the resort and the amphitheater affected East Troy, are the main issues which concern Christy Clancy in this, her second novel for St. Martin's Press. It is so interesting and well-written, I expect it will do at least as well as her first work, The Second House, so successful it has been optioned for a TV miniseries. A Ph.D. in English from the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, Christy worked eight years as a marketing specialist for IBM, then almost a decade as an adjunct English professor at Beloit College before becoming a full-time writer. Her work has also appeared in our best newspapers and literary journals. She lives in Madison with her family. It is a real pleasure to welcome to Madison Bookbeat, Christina Clancy. Your husband's family has such deep roots in East Troy that his great-grandfather was the mayor. How critical was that personal connection in deciding to base the book in East Troy and at the Playboy Resort just down the road a piece in Lake Geneva? I love that you said just down the road a piece because that's such an East Troy expression. I wanted to write about East Troy as a starting point. I've always wanted to write about that town. I think it's such an interesting place. And I think people have misconceptions about small towns as being kind of boring. But when you know people who have deep roots in small towns, you hear so many interesting stories and fun facts and everybody knows each other and there's kind of a sense of community. So I wanted to write a book where I could kind of explore some of the stories that especially my husband's father, who just passed away in February, um, that he had told me about the town. So that was my starting place was to write about East Troy. Um, And I wasn't sure if I was going to write a historical novel or a contemporary novel. Um, I was really interested, actually, there's a lot of activity from the 1920s during Prohibition. Um, So I was thinking maybe I'd write a historical novel about some of the old slot machines that people used to, there's rumors that there are slot machines under the lake in Lake Beulah. And then I I started working on a book that was kind of like a big chill type reunion story of people living on a lake um, on, on Lake Beulah. And I just had a fun fact where one of the characters mothers had been a playboy bunny I thought that would be fun to throw that in because it's a little bit of regional history that you know people in East Troy are aware of but a lot of people in the state don't realize that there used to be a playboy resort in that area and then the more I started doing research on it the more I thought how did the town change 
when it went from a sleepy farming town to a place where there's a Playboy resort 15 minutes away. And not only that, but Alpine Valley Music Amphitheater opened up in East Troy. So, you know, how, what was it like to be there in the seventies? And um, I think there's like a, a waterline for a lot of towns. Like there was like that year that the town seemed to kind of come of age and come into itself. And even though that happened in the seventies, you know, that that East Troy was really swinging. I think that's kind of the golden age of East Troy. So it was really fun to write about that time and to interview people. They just, the minute you'd say you were writing about Alpine Valley or the Playboy Resort, they would just wax nostalgic and light up when they'd ask them about it. I don't know if you're quite old enough to have had an opinion about Playboy Bunnies in 1981, but which is when the book is set. But what did, what did your husband's family in East Troy think about bunnies in the club at that time? Oh, that's an interesting question because they're, I'm, I'm not sure my husband's family was very approving of the Playboy Club because they're, um, my, my husband's mother used to be a nun. <laughs> so <laughs> she probably is not thrilled that her daughter-in-law is writing a book about Playboy bunnies. Um, and, and his father was fairly conservative socially, I'd say. Um, so they didn't frequent the club, although even conservative people, like socially, religiously conservative people, would tend to go there for brunch. And um, they, so I don't think that they would necessarily think it was as salacious as we think it is. You know, I think Playboy changed a lot. You know, it started out in the, the club opened in 1969 in Lake Geneva. And at the time, Playboy was really considered very classy. And so they had, you know, brunch. And I've talked to people who had special education conferences at the club, um, you know, steelworker conferences. It wasn't necessarily considered that um, racy, but Playboy as a corporation changed in the 1970s because it had to compete with Hustler and Penthouse. And I think the reputation began to erode and change the later you got into the 70s. So by the time my book is set in 1981, and by that time, I think people started thinking of Playboy as being tackier or um, more, you know, risque than it was thought of before. So it really depends when I, when I meet with book clubs, people have such different opinions about Playboy based on how old they are. And the, the people in the, the book being said in 1981, your protagonist Sherry is concerned that a lot of people in the town regard her as a prostitute or akin to a stripper or, or somebody of a, a slut. Would that have been the standard of the, at that time period? I think it depends again on the age of the people and, and what their perspective is. You know, I think that definitely women are hard on each other and that hasn't changed. And one of the things that shocked me was that uh, when I was doing research for the book and I was trying to find bunnies to interview, I would, ask people about it and they'd say, weren't they prostitutes or exotic dancers? And I'd hear that while I was talking to former bunnies and learning about how hard the work was and also how fun and validating it could be to be a bunny. And there was this kind of like disconnect between the way people think of the job and the, the way the job actually was. And also how little latitude women are given to be young and feel pretty and attractive and yet where does that cross the line? So I, I think that definitely in town, there would be some blowback from some people, but the, a lot of admiration from other people. Cause there were a lot of people who aspired to be bunnies. Like the resort was really considered 
a pretty cool place and pretty fun. And you could earn more money there than any place else in the neighborhood. Yeah, I tend to talk about that a lot when I talk about the book, that the money was a really important aspect of the job for women. Because they, you know, one of the bunnies told me that you could work, they would play, um, they would gamble at the, in the golf club in the back room, and you could make $800 a night. And um, I've also talked at my book launch, I was at Stateline Distillery and one of the women showed up and she was one of the first bunnies and she was in her eighties. She could still fit in her costume. And she said, you know what? I went there with my friend whose husband was in prison and had two kids and we became bunnies. And within a year we made enough money to quit and start our own businesses. And she said, and now I'm rich. And so is my friend. And I will always be grateful to Hugh Hefner for having given me an opportunity to, to, to get out of my circumstances and, and, and do something different. So it really was a path to being able to go to college, get a car, you know, how important cars were in the eighties um, and to, you know, move into a different echelon of life. Did most of the bunnies end up doing pretty well? Yeah, I think a lot of them did. I think a lot of the bunnies, um, you know, all the bunnies I talked to look back on the job as, as something that helped them gain confidence. Um, a lot of them have jobs in entertainment, like they work for hotel companies doing special events. They're, I think they, they learned how to be more outgoing. They're great in service industries. Um, one of the bunnies that I interviewed the most, her name is Pam Ellis. She worked there for four years and she, she started out before she was a bunny. She was a park ranger and she was, she was like, I was just sitting in a, in a, in a park, you know, at bored. It was just me. And then I heard about the job being a bunny and she's a knockout. You know, if you see her, she's just gorgeous. You could see why she, she, she would know she could do that. And then she's, she got the job. She worked there for four years and, um, you know, she ended up opening a fair trade business. And, um, you know, I think she credits that job with having, given her a new lease on life. But then you hear other people, one of the bunnies that I, um, or Pam even, her grandfather was so concerned about her being a bunny that he cut her out of his will. That don't seem fair. No, no. And she's, and I admire her because she was having so much fun that she was like, you know what? You can cut me out of the will. She could have quit at that time, but she ended up staying there for four years. She met her husband there. Um, her first husband, she, you know, she was able to buy a house on Lake Geneva and that became her nest egg for later on. So that was a transformative job for her. The, the way you describe it, it almost seems like an athletic team and, and the same kind of discipline and collaboration and cooperation with others and focus, goal oriented. I mean, I, I see great similarities between being a bunny and being on an athletic team. I love that comparison. It is because you, you have to get along with the other women. I think that, um, you know, sometimes I would hear about some competition with the women because I think mm. they all wanted to think they were the most beautiful bunny, you know, but they had to, you know, share the job, have people take over their shifts. They lived in a dorm together that was surrounded by a huge barbed wire fence. And um, so they, and they'd party together and go out. So I think there was a great sense of camaraderie that they, you know, had this hard job and they worked nonstop. The job became their life, just like in sports, you know, you, you can be defined by the sport you play. I think also the, the lessons you learn in sports 
and the lessons they learned as bunnies is what helped set them up in future life. The, the, the confidence, the, dis- the self-discipline, the ability to sustain hard work over a period of time. You mentioned Pam Ellis. Talk a bit about Bunny Jojo and the research you did for the book. Yeah. So I, when I first started out, I, you know, I really was not planning on writing about the Playboy Resort. I just wanted to get a sense of what the resort was like. And I talked to a friend of mine who stayed in Hugh Hefner's suite and she was saying, oh, it's so classy. It has a round bed. There's carpeting on the walls. So once I got there, I thought I, I need to learn more. So I, I started um, asking people if they knew Playboy bunnies and, and I would hear about bunnies through like um, people who have, who knew someone from their church group or their book club. And then I looked for news articles and the Lake Geneva news had an article about a Playboy reunion um, where the women were getting together, which is interesting right there. I mean, you could write a whole book about a Playboy reunion. And um, so that from that, I got some names and then I went on LinkedIn and tried to find some of these bunnies. And the, the bunny who got back to me was Pam. And um, I was so lucky that she did because she's one of the few bunnies that worked there for, for a long period of time. Most women would only work there during one summer. You know, a lot of them are college students who would just come make enough money. Someone wouldn't even tell their parents they were doing that and then go back to school and it would pay their tuition. Um, but Pam had been there for a long time and she was really it really fun to talk to because at first I think the memories felt kind of rusty, but then the more we talked, the more she would say, Oh, this is like a trip down memory lane, you know, and, and she would get really nostalgic and, and remember her youth. And, and it's fun. I'm sure you, you experience this when you interview people, but the longer you let someone talk, the more they start saying things towards the end of the conversation, you know, like jars their memory. And then she would have these funny, memories. Like once we were talking and I was about to hang up, but I just kind of let the call linger. And she said, you know, I remember when a bunch of us girls got in a van and we drove to Chicago and we met with a quack veterinarian who injected us with hog tranquilizer so we could lose weight. (laughs) It's like, that is something I would never make up myself. You know, (laughs) it was very validating to, to know that the research was, you know, like you couldn't find that stuff on Google, you know? (laughs) So, um, so she was, she was really incredibly helpful and I I appreciated it too, because there were a lot of bunnies who I talked to who didn't want their names, even in the acknowledgements, um, their own families didn't know that they had been bunnies. Um, one woman told me that her daughter found photos of her as a bunny in the attic when she was cleaning up and she was so appalled she was absolutely embarrassed and ashamed that her mom had done that, which I thought was really shocking. Um, so it, it really is interesting to see how people respond differently to that experience, or they just call and, and just not call me back. And I had a year to write this book. I was on deadline, so I, I really needed to move forward. So I was extra grateful to Pam. Is there anything in the book about the life of a bunny or the life at the resort that either didn't happen to one of them or at least couldn't have happened? Um, there were th- almost everything. So people get really frustrated with Sherry's character because she makes a lot of bad choices, um, which is the whole, the whole book is basically about regretting the things you did when you were younger and coming to terms with that. So I had to, I had to throw in some bad choices, but Almost everything that Sherry does was inspired by a story of some something that a bunny told me. Although most of the bunnies did not 
generally make a lot of bad choices. They just were young, like anyone, whether you're a bunny or not, you do a lot of the same things. But for example, one of the um, scenes, and I, I don't think I'm giving too much away, but I learned from the bunnies that they would take trips. Like men would buy them plane tickets to go places. And I, I really wanted to have Sherry, who's only known East Troy, who's, who's, who considers Milwaukee an exotic destination, to have her just get on a plane and go to a totally different city. I mean, that, that happened to a lot of the bunnies and it was really fun to write that scene because I thought, what, what would that be like for her? Um, but there were other scenes where I would learn about something and I don't wanna to give too much away, but there's, I wanted to create a connection between the magazine and the book. And there's a scene with a photographer. And um, so when, when you read that scene, that actually was inspired by a real situation that happened to one of the bunnies. But then I, I kind of added a little bit of a perverse twist to it and made it even worse. Cause you know, when you write fiction, you want to amplify the stakes. And, and um, I, so I wanted to make that a little worse than what actually happened in real life. I got very nervous reading that chapter. Yeah. It's, I pull back just, just before it could get really get bad. (laughs) And I'll note that most of the bad choices in one way or the other involve alcohol or drugs. Yep. Which, I mean, I know people have strong feelings about drug use or alcohol in books, but if you talk to anyone who was really socially active in the late seventies, early eighties, like cocaine, dexatrim, speed, I mean, dexatrim was speed basically, and alcohol were everywhere. The drinking age was 18. I mean, in Wisconsin with the tavern league, like this, you can't write an authentic book about someone coming of age at that time without having alcohol and drug use. And again, that plays into what I was exploring in the book is when you look back on things you did when you were young and you almost can't believe you did it, but you got caught up in this wave of excitement and energy and youthful, like um, youthful confidence, I guess you could call it, or naivete, you know, or foolishness, just damn or foolishness. foolishness. Yeah, but you know, one of the readers said something really fascinating, which I I thought I I was glad she said this because I hadn't thought of it. But Sherry makes bad decisions, but she also makes decisions she wouldn't have made if she knew better. Some of which pay off later in her life, you know. So. And I think she also had, there's one of the characters that there's a big, there are kind of two big twists at the end of the book. And she had intuition about one of the characters that she couldn't articulate. And so you don't see it coming, but I think in retrospect, she can look back and think, you know, my younger self had some ambivalence about somebody, whether she should or not, I don't want to say too much, but, you know, I think she some sometimes her um, decision making wasn't actually so bad. If only she had realized that forty years earlier. Yeah, she pays. She pays a very high price for you know, like guilt, regret, remorse. She she's really chased by those feelings because she she blames herself for things that happened. There's a very interesting construct to the book where the prologue is in the present and then the the bulk of the book is in the past and then it it wraps up in the present that's how did you hit on that 
structural device to, to set up the arc of the story? Well, I didn't want to use that structural advice because, or device, because that's kind of what I did for my first book, you know, where it starts in the present and then or the near present and then goes back in time and then moves forward in time again. But the more I was working on the book, the more I realized I needed a prologue um, that's set in the present day, because first of all, the, the project of the book is it's a book about looking back. It's a book about thinking about the experiences of our youth and how we get older, but they stay with us. You know, things that happened to us 30, 40 years ago feel like they could have happened yesterday. You know, we still have dreams that are so vivid about things that had happened and so on. So I wanted to, to write about that, but then also I felt like the reader needed to know that Sherry's going to be okay. Cause otherwise I think the book would be kind of excruciating, you know, to watch her make these decisions and not know how far she could fall. So you, you need to know she's going to make it out. Okay. She's going to be fine, but, but she's going to have things to think about. That business about we are still our past selves. That's why to me, Remembrance of Things Past is the greatest novel that's ever going to be written is because that's my whole view on life is if I'd known you for 30 years, I'd be talking to the, to the Christina Clancy that I've known for 30 years, not just the one that I'm talking to now, because we are a continuation in all our all our interactions are continuations of all that all that have been. You know, it's so interesting. We know that now, but when you're young, you have no idea. You think you're going to change. You're so like that. The idea of change is so heady. You think there's so much possibility for you. You're going to explode with potential and all these things are going to happen. And you're going to one day wake up and you're going to be a totally different person than you were when you were young, but we're, we're just us moving through time, you know, it, it is like we're on um, kind of a moving walkway, you know, not a, not a, a transforming machine, you know, so I, I do think it's so interesting getting older and thinking about that. And I also think there's plenty of books about um, characters who are in their 20s. But it's, it's, I, I don't know, I'm, when I'm out with my friends, I'm 53, when I'm out with my friends who are uh, similar in age, I'm like, we're interesting. We have so many fun, interesting things to say. Like, I'm, I'm surprised there isn't more fiction about people our age. Well, get to it. I mean, you, you know, that's, that's your job. That's your All job. Right. Uh, <laughs> marching orders. Thank you, Stu. We're, we're talking to Christy Clancy. Her book is Shoulder Season. Notwithstanding the bunny aspect, when you were 19 or 20, would you have liked Sherry as a, as a person, as a friend? Yeah, I, you know, I would have. I think Sherry and I have a lot in common. She's not me. It's really funny when you write a book and people think that you are the character, you know, and, and um, she's definitely not like me. I was naive like she was though. And I think one of the things I really wanted to write about was how men for me seemed so alien. I just had no, I, I thought men were so different and I would just spend so much time trying to figure out like what makes men tick. I didn't have any brothers. I pretty much grew up, grew up without a father. And I was so curious about men. And I think Sherry's like that too. And I think Sherry and I would have gone out for drinks and we would have just like talked about men a lot, you know, I was, and I think that's why in the book, all the men, I wanted to make sure that they seemed really nuanced and had lots of, of qualities to their personalities. I didn't want any straw men that were just bad or just good. Cause you know, both my books, my first book is called The Second Home and all the female characters really are exploring 
what men are like. I never realized that till after I, I wrote shoulder season, that there's just this whole wide array of men for women to like learn about what, what men are like through these different interactions with different kinds of masculinity and manhood that, that are embodied in the different characters. Um, so I think Sherry and I would have, we, we would have been goofy together. We would have laughed. I think I would have like just laughed until I cried with Sherry and she would have snorted and (laughs) made it made an embarrassing scene. And I wouldn't have minded that at all. So have you figured us out? You know, I kind of think I have. (laughs) And I think the thing I've learned is that men are a lot like women. You know, I, I also, after raising a son, I never realized how much pressure boys are under when they're growing up to, to be a certain kind of man. You know what I mean? Like the, they are in so much pressure to be in sports and to be tall and to be athletic. And, you know, I, I, I never saw that until I raised a son. Unfortunately for him, he was six foot two. And you know, <laughs> so he's, you know, and it was very sporty, but I, I saw the pressure and I saw the pressure that his friends faced, especially if they weren't that kind of guy, you know, and you have to carve out your own niche. You talked a moment ago about the emotional arc of growing old. What about the physical arc of growing old? How important was it to you in writing this book to address the issues of a woman going from 18 and 19 to her early sixties? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's so hard to be a woman in general with body image. And especially I I was one of the reasons I wanted to write about playboy bunnies is to think, well, what, what would it be like getting older? If when you were younger, you had to stand on a scale before you worked. If somebody put a pencil between your legs to make sure that your thighs didn't touch, you know, and they watched every move you made. And if you got in trouble because your lipstick wasn't vibrant enough, you know, I was, I was really interested in how, when you get older, does that stay with you? Cause I think a lot of my body images came from when I was young, when you're, when you can actually live up to some of those body image expectations. And then somebody, I was at a book club and I was, I was actually kind of offended because one of the people said, Oh, I was, I was so put off by Sherry when she's 59 because she was still so worried about how she looked and that she was so shallow. And I thought, do you know any women like that age? Like it doesn't stop. It doesn't make her shallow. It's, I think you're just always under a lot of pressure. And I feel even Sherry's character is so heavily scrutinized um, because we're just so hard on women. And Sherry starts absorbing that, you know, she meets later on in the book. I don't think I'm giving too much away, but she meets one of the former bunnies who's let herself go and who's happy letting herself go. And it occurs to Sherry where she's like, I don't have to work so hard to be thin all the time. Like I could be happy not worrying about whether I can fit into a size four anymore. You know? and, and that's like a revelation to her at, at 59. Did you talk to enough bunnies to know what the spectrum is on how many were like the bunny who let herself go and how many were like the, no, I still got to fit into the size four? No, I mean, everyone's experience is so varied that I don't think you could universally say that all bunnies worry about their looks when they're older. But I do think most bunnies are more conscious as older women of putting themselves together, of like looking presentable and having a certain kind of face. And even like Pam, when I talked to her, she would, she talked about how hard it was raising a daughter 
because you might see something that the bunny mother would, would see in your daughter and frown upon, and you, you don't want to say anything to her, but you also think, well, you don't want to gain weight. You don't, you know, you, you want to like fit a certain kind of mold. I know that that's the case, you know, that I, I just think they're extra conscious of how they look. And if they do let themselves go, they're very conscious of that too. And one of the litmus tests for how they feel about it is the bunny reunions, because some bunnies will look forward to it and they get really excited about going and other bunnies are absolutely like, they will not go to a bunny reunion because one of them called them competitive aging events. <laughs> you know, she said, all we do is scrutinize each other and see how we've aged. And that is kind of like a sport when you get older, you know, watching to see how people age, you know, like every now and then you'll, you'll see a picture of someone and you're shocked. You're like, wow, that's what they look like now. And, um, I think that happens maybe to a little greater degree with these bunnies. Cause they saw each other when they were knockouts. Have you been to any reunions since the book came out? No, because of COVID I was yeah. actually, they had a big one in Chicago and it kept getting delayed, but I was really thrilled because I was invited to it. And then I, I just couldn't go because it was canceled. And then the, the second time they had it, COVID was, I think they still had it, but COVID was, I didn't personally want to go and be exposed to it, but I would love to go. I, I love hanging out with the retired bunnies. They're so much fun. What has been the reaction among them to the book? You know, I was really nervous about how they'd, they'd see, because again, like I just fictionalized some characters. I imagine this world, some of it's based on reality, but in my head, it's even the, even like the shape of Lake Beulah is different in my head than it is in real life. And so I was worried that they would think that I was trying to say like, all bunnies are like this, but instead I've actually had the opposite experience where they feel so grateful that somebody has taken this experience that they've had seriously and in a literary way, you know, so many of the shows about Playboy are like jokes. They make the women seem like they're frivolous and stupid. And I think that they really appreciate that I didn't do that. There's kind of a famous bunny in Chicago. Her name's Candace Jordan. And she used to write for the Chicago Tribune as Candid Candace. And she's really big on Instagram and she does a lot of social stuff. And um, we were part of the Chicago Book Festival together. And I was really nervous because I, she has such a high profile and I know she communicates with lots of bunnies. She's been on the cover of the magazine a number of times and, um, you know, really built her, her world around Playboy. And she said, she loved the book. And she said, I've never seen myself in a book like this, but I, I could have been Sherry. I was from a small town. I was just like her. I, I had a stunted adolescence. I learned the hard way about men that was really validating for me. Speaking of fictionalizing people's real lives, there's a very important plot point that involves the Allman Brothers Band at Alpine Valley and a cameo by Greg Allman himself, whom we, yes. shall, whom we shall not address as Greggy. What, <laughs> what moral or legal considerations do you have writing a real person into a work of fiction? You know, it was... Really interesting to do that. First of all, I chose Greg Allman for a number of reasons. One is because the Allman brothers did play the summer of 1981. And I wanted to have a band. They, they didn't play like the same date that would have happened, but I wanted to make it kind of like that. Also, Sherry plays the organ and Greg Allman was an organist. I wanted Sherry to be able to relate to her own musicality to a different 
actually like the confidence Greg Allman had to be a musician because Sherry played the organ, but only in the church and she could never be like a rock or, you know, she, she could never play in a rock band because she didn't have the confidence. She never saw herself as she saw something that he could do maybe because he was a man, you know, when he was playing. And also the Cher used to hang out all the time at the Playboy Resort. So it was kind of fun to invoke Cher and Greg Allman. You know, one of the things that's really nice about having a book come out with a big publisher is I figured I'm just going to let them worry about the legalities (laughs) of having Greg Allman in there. But um, I did, I was really glad I wrote about him because I, I went down a really deep Allman Brothers rabbit hole when I was doing research, I, I watched so many interviews with him. I mean, so much of what you learn, you never put in a book. You know, I tried to imagine like, what would he say to Sherry? What would he, you know, what would his response be to, to the Playboy Resort and the club and his handlers and so on? So he doesn't have a huge scene, but he has a very pivotal scene in the book. The scene is not just the Allman Brothers on stage. It's also at the resort. It's it's a definite one-to-one personal cameo between Greg and Sherry. Right. And you know, one of the things that's really interesting about the resort, and and this was actually my starting place. I wanted to write about this, but I couldn't find enough people to give me, you know, I I had a one-year deadline to work on this book. So I just couldn't do enough research to make the book about this. But at the resort in the basement, there used to be a studio called Shade Tree Studio. And a lot of the music that we grew up listening to was recorded there. It's this fascinating angle on musical history, like Jack and Diane, John Cougar Mellencamp, that was recorded at Shade Tree Studio in the old resort and um, Leonard Skinner. And um, and then the, the equipment was considered just top of the line. And I, I can't remember who it is. There's a famous musician who in Chicago, um, who bought the equipment and now it's, it's still being used at a recording studio in Chicago. So actually the year that I was working on it, I was scheduled to go tour the studio and it just looks kind of like a regular, or it looked like a regular room, but the, there's snow on the roof and it collapsed. <laughs> so I couldn't go see it. Um, but I, I talked to, um, Bunny Carlos from Cheap Trick, uh, to try to get some information about Shade Tree Studios. And I tried to contact John Cougar Mellencamp's people, um, and just didn't get, I, I couldn't get far enough, fast enough to really make the book about the recording studio. I mean, maybe there could be another book after that, but I just think that's fascinating. The, and, and I'll, in, in Jack and Diane, where he says, dribble off those Bobby Brooks slacks behind the shade tree. I'm like, is that shade tree studio? I really want to know. Uh, this is going to kill you, but Sigmund Snowpeck in, in Milwaukee recorded first band on the moon, his band Snowpeck. I went to the recording sessions of Snowpeck's band, first band on the moon at shade tree at the resort in, I want to say 1980. It's- Stu, I met you at the wrong <laughs> time of my life. Although maybe we can corroborate on, on a, on a story about shade tree. Um, I'm sure Siggy would love to talk to you because uh, yeah, it was a lot of fun watching them record there. We're talking with Christina Clancy. The book is shoulder season. Why shoulder season as a title? Oh, well, you know, it's funny. I, half the readers I talk to know what shoulder season is and the other half don't, but shoulder season, first of all, I think it sounds poetic, but, um, (laughs) shoulder season in resort speak is the time that's not peak and that's not off peak. So it's generally like in Wisconsin, shoulder season is generally spring and fall. Um, you know, and the resorts kind of slow down 
and they're not as busy. So there was a scene I was writing where the resort's starting to slow down. It's actually, it slows down in, at the Lake Geneva resort before true shoulder season, because in Chicago, it's such a Chicago heavy clientele that when kids start going back to school, it's still summer yet it, it slows down. So somebody said to Sherry, oh, this is, we're heading into shoulder season. And the minute I typed that, I thought, oh, that's perfect. It's, you know, it's perfect for everything. Like her shoulders are exposed. Sherry is um, in the shoulder season of her life when she's looking back on this time that she had when she was, you know, I guess at her peak and, um, but she didn't realize that she was at her peak at the time. And um, so I I just thought that was a, a great title, but my editor didn't like it at first. And she said, yeah, we're going to have to change the title. And I, I didn't know why, because I thought it was a great title before the, the book was much more rambling. Like it had all these other plot points. It, it diverted a lot. And then when I zipped it up and, and figured out the plot and sent it, to, I didn't tell my editor what was going to happen. You know, the big twist, nothing. So she was really surprised when she read it and she's, she emailed me and she said, this book will be called shoulder season. Like she was <laughs> like, it's gotta be shoulder season. And I'm so glad it was. I think it's a it's a it's a great title for it. Now, Joyce Carol Oates has said she doesn't even start writing until she knows the last line of the book. But you started writing not even knowing how the plot would develop. Like I said, I started writing a totally different book. It's really interesting when you have a deadline for a book and you are someone like me who the joy I take from writing is not in moving characters through a plot so that the plot can be realized, it's getting to know the characters. So I truly let the characters dictate where the story is going to go. And they always, especially my first book too, like there are scenes where I gasp. I'm like, no, that didn't happen. And they're the, like the big twist that happens in shoulder season. Like I didn't know a lot of times I, I'll work on something and not know where it's going to go. And then I'll go for a run. And then on the run or when I walk, like, I know you're a runner too. Something percolates. Like I, I just will, I'll always leave for a run after I've been writing for a little bit. I never run first so that it's in my head. And then I think, oh, this is how it's going to go down or this is what's going to happen. And then sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't when you actually get it on the page. So the book doesn't end up getting written from the beginning to end, you have to go back and rewrite stuff from the beginning to fit in to what you've decided stuff happens later on. Right. Like I, I generally get, I'm a very slow and methodical writer. Like I call myself a bricklayer. That's painful for me because I end up having to delete a lot because when I, by the time I get to the end, I'll have a pretty polished manuscript, but I'll have to change it. And so I'm like, sorry, (laughs) sorry, past self for all the work you put into this. But with my first book, The Second Home, I was working on it. And my, when I sold it, my editor said, you know, I could tell you were so focused on what was going to happen with this house that the characters are fighting over that you forgot to add some twists at the end. And it was the most fun I ever had writing was to go back and modify the last third of the book so that there were more surprises. And I was like, oh yeah, readers like surprises. And it helped me when I wrote Shoulder Season to just keep that in mind, to, to keep thinking, oh, I, I don't want the reader to get ahead of me. I want, I want to always be kind of a little bit ahead of the reader so that, you know, I, I don't, I haven't talked to very many people who knew what was going to happen in the book, who saw it coming. I don't know if you did. No, I interpreted the prologue as a different kind of incident. Um, and I, and I did not know how it would end up. I obviously knew that something 
would happen to this one character, but I didn't, I didn't see the particular episode as it played out. No. Oh, great. Yeah. It's, and that's fun for me, you know, like it's, uh, I can't remember which famous writer said, if I knew what would happen in my book, why would I write it? But that's my, yeah. my mantra. Well, why do you write it all? Good question. I think life is so random and hard to understand and writing is kind of a way to harness the way we feel and like kind of make sense of it in a slow and methodical way. And, and to act things out through other characters, like your anxieties, or maybe thoughts you have that are kind of transgressive that you can't say out loud to a friend, like, or like something you think that's mean or, um, or that you shouldn't really say. And it's, that's why I love reading too. It's so cathartic to read a book and, and think, oh, somebody's been there where I, where I've been, somebody's thought about this or somebody, you know, cause we're so guarded and and careful in our lives and how we portray ourselves to other people. Another thing I think um, my mom was never embarrassed of anything, you know, like my, my, we had a lot of troubles when I was younger, you know, my, um, my dad was an alcoholic and he was manic depressive. And um, I remember my mom would tell people about him and I kind of kept it a secret. Like I didn't want people to know. And I, and I admired my mom for just being able to say, what happened with my dad, like what, and where she was at and how she, she was having hard times or dealing with things. And I think as I got older, I became more like my mom. And I think to be a writer is to not be embarrassed, you know, and, and to recognize how other people are embarrassed of things and to give them some leeway in a story to, to think, oh, you don't have to be embarrassed. Like this has happened. I wrote an essay about my dad because he ended up being homeless and um, I, we discovered that when I was, um, when he, when he died and I went to Denver for his funeral and, and I had no idea that he'd been living on the streets. And, and a lot of, I think my creative life comes from thinking about like, how do you tell those stories? It's important. And, and when I published that story, I couldn't believe the response. All these people from high school that I thought would have judged me were reaching out on Facebook saying I had such a hard time in high school too. And, and, and it wasn't because their dad was homeless, but they were dealing with the same kinds of secrets at home for other things that they were struggling with. And that's really empowering and important, I think, to be able to tell stories about, you know, even like telling a story about a Playboy bunny's life, like what it's like to be retired as a former Playboy bunny and to, to treat them with respect and dignity instead of making them the butt of a joke like that. I think that's important. I, like, I love doing that. Being transgressive is exactly why I don't write fiction, but only histories, because I don't want to know where my mind would go in case yeah. I, it's like, I don't know, let me write about the past of the past lives of other people that I feel safe doing that, but I don't, I don't want to write about myself or, or, or see myself projected in what I write as fiction. Right. And you do have to make yourself vulnerable. And I, you know, you'll, you'll interact as a writer with readers who, you know, maybe don't understand your project, or maybe they have really sensitive feelings about something you're writing about. And it, 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 it's uncomfortable for them. Um, you lay yourself bare and you just have to accept that that's part of what being a published author is. You know, there, there are going to be people who are going to have really strong reactions to what you write that are both negative and positive, and they're going to make assumptions about you and what you think and, and how much of your book is uh, inspired by your real life. And 
the, the great thing though, like truly for me, fiction is fiction. You know, you, you have a starting point from your own experience, but it's so much fun to make things up. It seems to me that you're saying that for you, characters trump plot as aspects of, of the writing project. Where does the place where everything happens fit in your scheme of importance of, of things in, in your writing life? Oh, it's super, super important. And you can tell from um, shoulder season that East Troy is critical. Somebody said, you know, why did you have to ha write about a real place? Like write about like, you know, the Lake Geneva Playboy Resort. How could you make that up or put it anywhere else? You know, it was, it was, it was such a creation of its time and its place and the way people experienced it. So I'm, I'm really interested in how place shapes us. And because I like character, I think of how, where we are informs us. You know, when I was a kid, I, we moved like in the middle of the night. One day we were in Denver and the next minute we were on an airplane and we were starting over in Milwaukee with my mom. And I think that made me hyper aware of place of like where I came from and what it means to be living in the mountains. Because my dad was always so proud of us being like mountain girls and like we were fourth generation Denverites, which is really unusual. And suddenly we're in this place that's flat and that's gloomy and that, you know, is, but it has lakes. And, and I felt like I had to be like a different person for being in a different place. So maybe that early experience really shaped my sensitivity to place, but both my books are super place heavy. It, it really matters that the characters respond very deeply to the places that they're around. Plus I'm, I'm kind of a big nature lover. You know, I, I love to swim. I love to be outside. And um, I think that when I write about characters who are experiencing those places. It's like I get to be there with them. You're fourth generation Colorado and you're married a fourth generation Wisconsinite. Yeah, I guess we've got deep, deep roots in both places. You've said that Lori Moore's Birds of America helped you find your own voice as a writer. How so? You know, this gets back to your question about plot, you know, and characters trumping plot. Until I read Birds of America, I never knew you could tell a story where, and this is like with total respect for Lori Moore. I'm not, I'm not saying like nothing happens in her stories, but not a lot happens in her stories. And I was so freed by that. I thought, wow, you can write a really gratifying story and have, you know, not too much happen except for just a kind of like, um, like in Henry James where he says like, you know, a, 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 a shift in from major to minor in music can be just enough to happen in a story or where a character just kind of starts to understand their place in the universe a little bit differently. That said, I've had to learn how to have more plot because the fiction that I've been writing is a little bit more commercial and it does need to have more things happening. But I, it was very freeing to, to learn that I could write a story where you can deal with small and big changes. Well, speaking of commercial, uh, there was some big news earlier this year about your first book, The Second Home, that the actor who played Jamie Lannister on Game of Thrones was signed to star in a miniseries by Sony's TriStar Television. What's the status of that project? It's still moving forward. And um, in fact, it just got re-optioned by Sony. Um, I'm The whole like TV movie part is completely foreign to me. And I try not to get excited about it because I just feel like in that world, anything could change. Like Nikolai Koster-Waldau could be asked to be the next James Bond. Like He's not going to have time for a TV series, but he's, he's engaged in it. And I was just in Los Angeles and met with one of the producers and 
Um, they're, you know, they're, they're looking for a showrunner, which I didn't even know what a showrunner was until now. And um, they said that there's a little bit of a backlog because of COVID because they had all these projects that got delayed. And then a lot of books got optioned during the COVID year. So I think that, um, you know, studios aren't even taking meetings right now. So I think it's just a little slower, but hopefully it'll still happen. And in the meantime, hopefully they'll just keep optioning it. And who do you see playing Bunny Sherry and her more mature incarnation when that gets optioned? Oh, gosh, it would be so much fun to cast that book, wouldn't it? Um, I think, you know, honestly, I kind of see Bernadette Peters, <laughs> Sherry, <laughs> as an older woman, like I, she's described as Bernadette Peters. And I've been watching so much Bernadette Peters now that Stephen Sondheim died. I've been watching some of the old um, like Sundays in the park with George makes me, it feels more emotional every time I watch it and see her. And I'm like, she'd be such a great Sherry. She could bring so much depth and dimension. Um, I'm not sure who the younger Sherry would be. I've had some um, different ideas, but I, I don't know. Do you, do you have any casting suggestions? Probably an unknown ingenue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Who's, who's the woman from um, the chess? She'd be great. Okay. You know, she has those soulful eyes and, you know, somebody who you'd believe would be naive, you know, but still likable. As I mentioned in the introduction, you have a PhD from the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee with a specialty in suburban literature and eco-criticism. You worked as a marketing specialist for IBM for eight years and were an assistant visiting professor of English at Beloit College. Which of those three periods in your life has been most relevant to your success as a novelist? Oh, that's really interesting. You know, I think, so working in academia can be kind of frustrating because you don't really make very much money. And I was working as an adjunct. And, um, you know, honestly, at the time I graduated with my PhD, there just weren't tenure positions and I couldn't just move anywhere. I had two kids and a husband with a job here. And and so sometimes I drive back from Beloit and think, what did I do? I could have stayed at IBM. Like what kind of career opportunities did I miss out on by taking seven years of my life and, and putting, you know, and becoming an academic. And then I think the thing I didn't realize was that every one of those interactions, all those writers I got to meet, um, the stories that I got to tell, the fact that I had my brain in the world of literature every day. And like every class was so much fun to elucidate different um, elements of different stories with students. And also just being around young people. I think that 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 time that I was at Beloit College really, and, and also at UW-Milwaukee really helped me become a writer. And I think the reason that I was able to, like one of the reasons my first book did pretty well is because I had, nice blurbs from writers that I knew because I was networking. I would, I would go to see other writers read. I would go to writing residencies. I'd, you know, I, I was just kind of in that world and I never realized how much there was kind of like payoff for that later on. Now I didn't do it for payoff, but it, you know, those, those connections and contacts really helped. I have to say that I found myself reacting emotionally at, to the end of the book. The, the resolution of everything, I found, I found it very emotional. Did you get emotional writing it? Yeah, I was, I'm, I'm actually really touched to hear that you found it emotional because you don't know when you're working on a book, what you find emotional, if the reader is going to find it as emotional. The last chapter is where I feel the beating heart of the book exists. And 
when I was working on that, my father-in-law was dying and he loved East Troy so much. And the book, you know, it's, it's talked about like, it's a book about Playboy, but really for me, it's a book about East Troy. And when I was able to make it about East Troy again, at the end, it just, you know, kind of had me, I was like, I, I literally like was crying when I was working on some of those scenes where people talk about East Troy and what it means to them. Cause it's just such a special place. I don't want to say I was overtly crying, but I, I got a little touched because I liked the resolution and I think I know what happens to that building. Oh, interesting. Well, I can't wait to hear. Yeah. My, my first book is very like very emotional. Like people will tell me that they're, you know, my, my friend, Chris is a big burly guy. And he's like, I counted, I cried seven times <laughs> when I read the second home. This book is not quite as much that it's more of a romp, but I'm, it, you, you want it to move people, whether well, they cry or not, but just to, to feel something. Well, it is a very successful effort. And, and what are you working on now? I don't know. <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm actually having a call today with my editor about my third book. So um, I have lots of ideas, but I, I was originally working on something set in 1927, but I think I'm going to write something more contemporary. So I have lots of ideas, but nothing I can, I, I, I honestly, I, if I knew, I'd tell you. Well, you know, the, the Chicagoland gangsters hanging out in Lake Geneva, there are a lot of people who liked that genre of book and like that time period. And you've got a lot of characters to deal with. So, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a big fan of historical fiction. Actually, that's one of the things about this book is you get the sense that there's so much verisimilitude about life at the resort that it almost qualifies as historical fiction, not just a novel, that there is the research behind it to say, yes, if you want to know what life at the resort was like in the early 80s, this is it. Yeah, no, I definitely, it, it, some people would call it historical fiction and then readers would get upset. They're like, no, 1981 was just yesterday. <laughs> like, you can't call that historical fiction. I'm like, that was 40 <laughs> years ago it's so weird so i do think it counts as historical fiction but it's kind of on that bridge you know where it, it could be contemporary it could be historical um because it does some of it takes place in our current day well i'm a historian so i say it's historical fiction and however you classify it it is very successful the book is shoulder season by christina clancy from our good friends at saint martin's press Next week, an encore presentation of our conversation with Alison Bechtel about her latest graphic memoir, The Secret to Superhuman Strength. Until then, on behalf of News and Public Affairs Director Charlie Pittman, Engineer Chuck Cademan, and all of us here at Madison Bookbeat, I'm Stu Levitan. Thank you for joining us. And now, as Ben Sidrin plays us out with the appropriately titled Little Sherry, please stay tuned for Alex Wilding White and all-around jazz. You're listening to WORT, 89.9 FM, Madison. Listener-sponsored, Community Radio.